Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's May 4th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're sharing a conversation with director Rebecca Miller, whose new film, Maggie's Plan, will be released later this month. The comedy stars Greta Gerwig, Ethan Hawke, and Julianne Moore as three figures in a complex love triangle. Following its New York premiere at the 53rd New York Film Festival last fall, Miller joined us for one of our free NYFF Live Talks, which take place daily throughout the festival and are sponsored by HBO. The event, titled From Script to Screen, was co-presented with New York Women in Film and Television, and also featured producers Damon Cardasis and Rachel Horowitz, editor Sabine Hoffman, casting director Cindy Tolan, and co-writer Karen Rinaldi who all joined moderator Eugene Hernandez to discuss the process of bringing Maggie's plan to screen. Let's go now to that conversation. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 this year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org slash WRT25. Rebecca Miller, writer-director, sitting right here to my left. Welcome, Rebecca. And actually, why don't we try it this way? Why don't we have each person introduce themselves, tell you their role on the film, and just a little bit about how they got involved, how and why they got involved in this project, because it might be a way for us to kind of start um, and kind of get the ball rolling as we talk about this collaboration. It's always interesting to hear how, how and when and why different people got involved with a particular film. So we don't even need to go in order. Who wants to, who wants to start? <laughs> I can start. Hi, I'm Karen. Star signs. Star signs. <laughs> I'm Karen Rinaldi. Uh, I wrote the story that Rebecca adapted for Maggie's plan. Uh, how did we get started? We got started about four years ago. Um, we're friends. We were talking about what uh, Rebecca was going to work on next, and she was looking for a story. And I said, "Let me tell you a story." And I told her the story about Maggie. And she said, I like that story. What is that story? I said, that's eh, from my unpublished novel. You can have it. And <laughs> we, we started talking about it uh, over the next couple of years, and it developed into uh, the extraordinary screenplay that Rebecca wrote. Uh, I'm Damon Cardasis. I'm one of the producers, and I'm Rebecca's producing partner. And we have a production company called Round Films. Um, so I knew about the story very early on. We were sort of looking for a variety of projects, and Rebecca mentioned that her and Karen had spoken, and it sounded like a great idea, and so, very early stages. Uh, I'm Rachel Horowitz, and hold on. (laughs) 
I produced the film as well with Damon and Rebecca. And I got involved because I knew Rebecca and was a big fan of hers and also a um, longtime friend and wanted to work with her. And we talked about different projects. And she uh, threw this in a bunch of, you know, it was on a list of some things that were percolating and it really um, caught my attention. I'm Sabine Hoffman. I'm Rebecca's editor. And this is our fourth collaboration, and I feel very blessed to be part of Maggie's Plan. <laughs> I'm Cindy Tolan, and I'm the casting director, and this is our fifth film together, and I think Rebecca made one previous, and it was a short film, and it was Florence, and I didn't cast that. <laughs> 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 so I feel like we're at a milestone at this moment with five films. It's amazing. Congratulations. The film is terrific, and for those of you that haven't seen it yet, I do strongly recommend that you try to go see it on Sunday. Um, so let me just start with Rebecca and Karen. Um, let's talk. Let's hear a little bit more about the conversation you had. You were friends, you said already. Um, you started talking about working on this project. Um, what it, what were the aspects of it for each of you that made you want to? collaborate on adapting this to a feature film. I understand the tone of the piece maybe changed a little bit. Tell us about some of the early conversations you had about the specific project. Well, it's funny because memory is a funny thing and everybody remembers things slightly differently. I remember her sending it to me without describing it and then I read it. <laughs> but anyway, I mean like saying I think this might be good. This strand might be good. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, I did think it was a good idea. That, 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 that it was different in the sense that it wasn't, the approach was not comedic. Uh, that's accurate, right? It was not a comedic approach. It was, it, was, it was more serious and it was very much, it was tougher and didn't, it wasn't as lyrical. It was, but, but the central, the thing that really hooked me was the central, um, kind of switch, the kind of central idea and, and, and the hook, because I'd never actually made a film with, a, with really a hook, and like a song, you know, I mean, it has a hook. And in a way, the, the fact that it had a hook liberated me in, in, in a lot of ways. And so we started, I, 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 I took it and I started breaking it down and taking everything that I could from the actual book and put, like, and then started embellishing and changing and adapting. And we would have coffee, endless coffees, talking about, about these, the transformations that were happening, what was being kept, what was not, what I was losing, how I felt, you know, and the, there, there, was, there were substantial changes. But I mean, at the same time, it was a, it was a real, you know, without, I really needed the, the mother of the, the, the mother thing, the, of the vinegar, or whatever you call it, to, to make the rest of it, the, the thing grow. And then it continued, you know, the conversation continued to in, actually to uh, expand it to include everybody on this um, panel because every, it, I started needing more feedback. But you talk to me if you want to talk about a little bit more about it. It's funny because I... <laughs> Well, we'll talk about that later. But I had put together the Maggie, I had pulled the Maggie parts, Maggie and Georgette parts of the novel. It's a bigger novel. Um, 
into a 70 or 80 page right. document that I did send to you, but it was after I sort of told you that the hook. The hook, the story. okay. Yeah. Um, and my work was more, probably more polemical, more wanting to make a point, um, you know, not as much fun. That's why it's still not published, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. It's probably where it needs to stay is in the drawer, the proverbial drawer where the novel lives sometimes. Um, but working with Rebecca was amazing because watching Rebecca humanize the characters. And then the main characters were mine. So it was John, well, those of you who have seen it, it would be Maggie, Georgette, John, the children um, were all my characters. And, and sort of the, the, the storyline follows that. But for those of you who have seen it, the pickle man, <laughs> Tony and Felicia, and a lot of really wonderful, wonderful touches were all Rebecca's. So that actually didn't come from the book at all. So it was really sort of this, what, what, what I think Rebecca's talking about is it becomes the mother or the, the sort of place where it all starts. And then it becomes something else, something that Rebecca very much um, has her imprint all over it. And I, I, I like Rebecca's Maggie better than I like my Maggie, which is really a very satisfying process to go through, uh, very humbling and really, really wonderful and grateful. Well, I want to pick up on that. Why, why do you like, as a way of maybe you describing um, Karen, this character, tell us why you like Rebecca's Maggie more than your Maggie as a way of explaining who this Maggie is and how she evolved from your work to the broader film that we see. Um, Maggie was, in my Maggie was uh, more sort of fierce and uh, unforgiving, and a, like I said, more of a polemical character, which is not really what anybody wants to read or see, but I had written the novel really to make a point about, very much about women. So that I was frustrated that I thought that women weren't, I'm a publisher and an editor. So I live in this world of media and story and fiction and, and you know TV and everything else. So I thought, well, I hadn't seen women portrayed in a way that I want them to be portrayed. And so out of that frustration, I started doing sketches of women. These sketches turned into these five women, the five women turned into a novel, and then it felt very much like I was making a point and you can't make a point with story. That's not what story's for. There's a great line that Rebecca wrote into the screenplay where Georgette is talking about, you know, she scolds her ex-husband and says, you didn't write a novel. You wrote, what did she say? You wrote a, you wrote a thesis on, you know, Georgette has this line and in the film, you wrote this. And I thought, oh my God, that's what I did. <laughs> so, oh, right. oh, and in right, a way, right. I thought that was also you speaking to me and saying, <laughs> you didn't write it. So, I, so there, was, there was a point of creating these women that I fell in love with and wanting them to come to life, but it needed the sort of softer touch, the more sort of um, the, the flawed character that actually brings any story to life. And that is something that Rebecca was able to do that I, I couldn't do on the page. Yeah, there, there, so there was a kind of a, you know, the, 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 the question of what is the essence of the characters, which is very, very important to me and really started, you know, because you can't really spool out anyone's destiny before you know who they are, you know, so like the essential self. And then comes the mechanics of writing the story. And that's where, you know, uh, you know I had a lot of conversations with Rachel, uh, especially in terms of the final act and like, you know, questions like, well, but John has to find out. I mean, these kind of questions, I'm sorry you haven't seen the film, but they're, they're, it's, it's it, the, writing a film like this, which is kind of a mate, mating between a, 
screwball comedy and a and a and a romantic comedy and a drama. I mean, like it's kind of in some strange little domain of its own, but it does have its mechanics, and you have to obey them, and you have to make it work for the audience in a certain way. And um, so, and I also spoke to Sabine um, about it because I knew she was going to cut it, and she was, you know, very helpful. Uh, to, to look at it from that point of view. And Cindy looked at it, Damon looked at it, because I'm always interested. I don't take everyone's advice by any means, but um, at the same time, I love to know, hear people's perspectives when I'm ready for them. Yeah. So now that the process is finished, the movie's premiered, you've sold the film to distribution, let's hear about some of those perspectives from um, others on the panel. Tell us about some of the concrete conversations you remember you remember having the the feedback that you remember giving the the ideas that either you gave that were accepted or not accepted but that contributed to this broader collaboration whoever wants to start well i i think looking at the script i mean you always the script changed many times over many years because we had original dates that we were planning on starting and then they got pushed for whatever reasons and so you sort of continue on this journey and the story changed there was one time where there was a in one of the drafts where there was a whole Guggenheim scene yeah I was just remembering that they actually the guy actually went down the, the Guggenheim down we were the trying to figure out a skateboarded budget. down the ramp of the Guggenheim and Rachel we, had a friend at the Guggenheim who we reached out to, <laughs> to so see. wanted that to happen yeah and then <laughs> you know originally we were supposed to be shooting in Zurich so you know we have these fantasies oh we're going to shoot in Zurich how how luxurious and then you sort of you look at your budget and you start seeing it going lower and lower and then <laughs> you realize you're shooting 45 minutes upstate New York yeah, um, lucky not to be in Central Park originally we were thinking it was going to be in Central Park so I think you have to start trying to marry the creative with the reality of the financial constraints, which is always depressing, and it's a depressing conversation. And so you try to figure out a way of how best can we still pull this off, make it the way that it should be made, but also make it for the amount that, that we have and for within what the restraints are, so. For me, it was a really, really interesting experience. My, um, my background, I suppose, if I had to pull from one aspect of the process is very much in script development. Um, I spent like more than a decade working at studios as what was called a D-girl <clears throat> in the impolitically correct, unpolitically correct days. And, and that's not at all Rebecca's process. So it was, um, it was really wonderful and uh, kind of revolutionary for me to play the role of a development producer with someone who didn't need it or want it, but who was, um, who was developing a script, you know, sort of with a team. And, uh, and, and my, um, my experience, which is sort of what Damon was talking about, having to do though with development, is that when we started, I think I imagined a big, I thought that hook was so commercial Right, Rebecca. There were there was a moment yeah. where I was like, "Oh, we can get money. This can be <laughs> like we can get paid, and you know it'll." And what's fascinating is that the push and the pull of all of these things we've talked about, most importantly, the auteur uh, vision that Rebecca, you know, had inside her artist brain, 
made the film happen in exactly the way it needed to. So that means the scale of it and how much the hook drove it versus uh, how much the characters and the realness of the characters drove it. Mm -hmm. So I think that ultimately, I mean, yes, it would have been better to have a couple million more dollars or, or be at the next tier of the DGA, but I think at the end of the day, Eugene, your point being, you know, looking back, um, it could not have been a Rebecca Miller film in that other version where the hook was leading it as, you know, that's the tail leading the dog. It also felt like at a certain point, we, the movie was, uh, putting together the movie was sort of, we had, it was like, this is very Maggie-esque, like we have to let go and let the universe <laughs> take over. And, you know, there was an element of that where things ended up working out for the best. And because we had to push, I can go into more detail, but uh, like we ended up the day that we needed a blizzard, there was a blizzard actually, <laughs> you know, and just financially so you're thinking, yeah, you know, one of the things that I don't, not to go into specifics of a bond company, but you know, they look over your budget and they're like, can you, what you, what's gonna happen if there's no snow? Can you afford the special effects? And you're like, yeah, sure, don't worry. Like we have backup plans for that. You know, and you're just trying to get everyone to just say like, shut up, yes, let's, can we start filming already? But there happened to be a blizzard. So it, you know, it all sort of miraculously fit together, I think when it needed to. From my perspective, it's incredibly lucky to be working with Rebecca because we start very early reading early drafts, but I always try to say fix it in prep to directors or producers, <laughs> and that never happens. But with Rebecca, because she's such an amazing writer and really pushes the material already in the writing stage to being incredibly precise and tight, that does happen. So we always have started with an incredibly tight and beautiful script. And then I was also lucky to be part of at least a little bit with her discussions with the director of photography, Sam Levy, where they very intensely thought about the color scope of the film, certain visual elements, and I got to be a part of that a little bit. And that helped me get very deeply immersed in Rebecca's vision and really understand her vision for this particular film, as well as with our previous projects, where we really talk about the characters a lot. And because so much comes out of the truth of the characters. And that may lead to Cindy and how you cast and find your characters. You know, I get a script from Rebecca, and I'm like, well, how are we going to cast this? What are the nuts and bolts? Artistically, I know we can do it, right? But what's the budget that we're starting at? And who are the players, and what are the roles? And at what level can we get them? And this is a financial conversation. This isn't even the art of who you want. So and you, a lot of you haven't seen the film, but what I will say is that there are three principal characters. There's Maggie, there's Georgette, and then there's John. And it's called Maggie's Plan. Okay, But then you have a $10 million film. How can you cast this for that amount of money in in the, in the financial scheme in Hollywood. How can you do that? This is a business, what are we gonna do? So who's gonna be Georgette? Julianne Moore, fantastic. You know, our currency has just gone up. You know, <laughs> who is going to play Maggie? Greta Gerwig, awesome. Okay, now we're in the triangle. Who's going to be John? 
Seriously, who is going to be a leading male actor in Hollywood opposite these awesome women, but be looked at as a supporting man, a supporting role? And, and that, you start breaking that stuff down, and then the budget goes down. And then it goes down. And then it goes down. And then what's amazing about Rebecca is that she rewrites it each time for the budget of the film. And everybody's talking about Hook. The hook that we always have with Rebecca Miller is Rebecca Miller, okay? <laughs> you know, period. You know, it's like when we started out with personal velocity, no one knew who Rebecca Miller was. Nobody knew who she was as a filmmaker, right? All I knew was that I had the hook with Rebecca Miller and if I could get any actor in the room to talk to her, she would reel them in and then we would be able to take off. That's no longer the hook now, right? Because it's been proven, it's a proven commodity. So now it's like financially, how can Rebecca Miller make her films with the cast that she needs to make so that more people see them? And that's always now my approach to casting a Rebecca Miller film. What I will also say is that everyone keeps saying that this is a departure for Rebecca Miller. I keep hearing that over and over and over again, that this is a romantic comedy, that this is a screwball comedy. I ask you all to go back and look at all four of her films. Every single thing people are talking about are in there. There may, they may be small nuances, but every single thing, there is comedy in all of them. That's what I have to say. <laughs> These are such great insights, and I love that um, we especially have the, the, the ability to look at these relationships, your creative relationships over time, yeah. because I think it's really informative for an audience to hear about a collaboration yeah. that becomes so nuanced because of that time. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an amazing thing. I mean, those of you who are filmmakers or, you know, that, that, that those relationships become so incredibly important, and you don't make films alone. And uh, th so, so your connection to the people and your relationship with the people and continuity, when it's appropriate, is, is incredibly important. Mm. Um, I have more questions, but I want to give the audience a chance. We're at the half hour mark already, which went very quickly. So we have um, microphones on either side. There they are. So if you have a question, raise your hand. We're going to get the microphone to you so that people listening to this podcast at home or watching the video on YouTube in the future will have a chance to hear your question. So um, let's go ahead and raise a hand. The first people that ask questions are always a little shy. <laughs> Don't be shy. It's a warm group. They're not going to, yeah. So we'll start on the side, the third row right there. I was absolutely crazy about personal velocity. And oh, when I saw you. it, my eyes went, oh my God, I never saw anything. It was this independent film. You were at the beginning of the era of truly unique uh, women characters. So I thank you and, and you for uh, casting who, who, whom you did. And um, I just wanted to know, do you ever consider uh, a story that's not uh, from a friend or that's from uh, an outside screenwriter? for your projects in round company, you said round company, I believe? We, I, I have read many films from outside. They never have yet been quite right when I have nothing to do with them from the beginning because it's almost like the train has left the station. I can't get under the hood. I, I don't, I, 
<laughs> I don't know. You know, it, it, there's an element of being a mechanic finally when you're a screenwriter, and it, it, I don't know how to drive the car, you know, anymore. I don't know how to start, and I can't. I need something to get really under my skin. So the answer is, I always think it could happen. What I have become more and more open to is adapting people's books. That I find very interesting because then you have a lot done for you, but you still have a lot of openness and you can rearrange everything, you can restructure everything, but you've got something to start with, you know? So I, I like that. I find the hardest thing actually just starting with a screenplay and nothing. I mean, I've, I've done that uh, twice and that, that's, that's difficult. I always write fiction myself actually, uh, you know, and then adapt that, so, you know, I've done that too. But. So I'm open. My, my follow-up to that is to ask Damon to weigh in as well because you have this partnership, this company. Um, tell us about the kinds of projects that you're looking for. Tell us about your interest. Um, yeah, um, I think it's, I mean, sort of a variety of things. The, the company is slowly growing at an organic pace. So it's... Um, some ideas Rebecca and I have spoken about. Um, there's I write as well, which Rebecca's helped nurture, and so we're going to be producing some of those. There's a book that we've optioned um, that is being written into a screenplay by the author right now. Um, and then there's um, other ideas that we've talked about um, writing or other. I mean, we're sort of writer focused. It all sort of has to start with a script, which would. I guess be such an obvious answer, but everyone says that, um, and I don't think that's always the case. Mm. Um, so I think it comes down to good writing, but you know, all sort of genres, I think you'd be, <laughs> we have something we wanna write together that is, would blow everyone's mind, so, <laughs> which you won't find out about tonight, but <laughs> it's like a total 180. Um, so it can be everything from big, small, art house, mm -hmm. experimental, um, I don't know. Anything that's fun and, and well-written. In this case, you uh, were and able to... In a documentary, actually. Wow. In this case, you have sold the film to Sony Classics. Before we take our next question, tell us about how, when you finished a film, you premiere it at festivals, you go to Toronto, you come to New York, you show it to buyers. How do you make that decision? How yeah. do you make that decision on who's the right home for your film? Well, Rachel, would you like to take that question? Avec <laughs> plaisir. Uh, um, uh, you know, we, we are uh, funded independently, so we had a committee of people who made the decision. It was not any one of us, um, although at the end of the day it was one of us. Uh, the person who um, put the most money in, had the you know largest vote, and we were all thrilled. I mean, we think we we all feel that we've kind of grown up on Sony Classics movies. There there are a lot of movies that that company has released here that um, no one else would have taken a risk with. And although I don't feel that we are necessarily in that category, it's really an honor to be you know in the library with. And, and the family of. Um, but it's not fun to, you know, uh, yeah. it's not fun to go to festivals. Going to a festival without a distributor is, mm -hmm. is an is intensely nerve-wracking experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, you're lucky if you have a few people who want it. That's an amazing thing to have happen. 
So nerve-wracking because you might come home without it. Well, you don't know. You don't know if if you don't know if you'll have a distributor wanting your film. But and then if you do, you don't know if they'll give enough money that then your financiers can get their money back. And you don't know if you're going to get a distributor who's going to really take care of your film. And you know, it's a it's fairly everybody on top just like staring what's going to happen on this one night. I mean, it's very insecure. Moment. Say that I mean you should say the joke that you oh. opened. Well, it's it's but sort of like getting dressed up in a bridal outfit and going to the city hall and hoping someone will propose. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the flip side of that though is that we did get to make the movie that we wanted to make and yeah. there was nobody overseeing that which was, you know. Right. And yeah, I all the financiers issues. were awesome and very supportive and very behind us and just we've had a great collaboration with all of them so right and i've always had artistic control of my films and, and in a way and been protected by my producers in a way too so that and and it's very it's harder to have that once you have the kind of a studio behind you final cut is really important i think for a director to have in this situation <laughs> yeah which Not is that by really editor. rare <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, let's go up to there. Yes, hi. Yeah, hi. I, I apologize in advance if you find this question annoying. You probably have heard it before. But I wonder if you think self-consciously about how much of your father you carry around with you as an artist. Um, I don't think about it. I don't think that many people think about that. I don't think about that so much. But I'm aware that he loved to put it over, as he used to say. Um, he loved to make people laugh. He loved to put, you know, to make feel like he made something really well made. He he constructed something that was well made, like a table or a chair. And I have that feeling too. I don't want to leave a script until I feel like all the screws are tight, that everything is like really made, and that then I feel like okay, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I haven't just left it all flimsy. And I'm always amazed by you know that that isn't always the attitude towards scripts. Scripts are often thought of as just a springboard for this miraculous thing uh, that's going to happen on set. And I, and I, I, that's not my attitude. I, I, I don't like that attitude. But I think that that. Um, yeah, so like in that sense, and I think in some ways, maybe some of his humor, you know, but I don't know, I, I, I guess I don't think about it that much, but certainly it's there to be explored. Is that lesson something that he instructed or something that you observed? Uh, n- n- no, more observed and sort of yeah. absorbed, yeah. Absorbed, yeah. Let's see what other questions people have. Um, so, okay, so right here in the third row, hi. Hi. Um, uh, you all alluded to the fact that the script went through a lot of um, changes and developments, and I was wondering, when you got to the editing, did it then still go through a lot of uh, transformation? Well, I mean, Sabine, you should say something about this. It was unusual for us. Well, you go talk about it a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I mean, we had a pretty tight schedule, and uh, as we said, there was a beautiful script to start with, but it was also a long script. So our very first assembly was 2.15, I think, 2 hours and 15, which is unusual for us. We usually have our first assembly around 2 hours maximum, sometimes even underneath. And um, in our process, we ended up cutting, I think, 40 minutes of material but really just dialogue. What's interesting is it wasn't, like other films, like Personal Velocity or Pippa, we restructured the films. This film wasn't restructured. And we only lost one scene that was about 
you know, a minute long. It was all little bits of dialogue that got cut out. And it, it was like we were, yeah, the process is fascinating because you realize, Rebecca always says that it's different on the page than it is when you see it. And the truth of a performance can do so much more than any written dialogue can do. And we really experimented. I mean, I think what, what is so wonderful with Rebecca is also she's completely fearless and she will push any kind of possibility. And we really tried different things. And, and I, I want to always make the cutting room a playground to explore ideas and nobody has to be afraid to try things. We, we can always put it back if it doesn't work or, you know, but we, we were pretty yeah. daring. Okay, let's see what other questions we have. Can we do uh, the front row up here in the corner, right in the front. Just a moment, wait for the mic. Coming right now. I was just wondering if you rehearse a lot with your actors. Do you have time for that? Or? I rehearsed uh, with all the actors in a kind of way where we read through the scenes and we um, made sure that the dialogue worked and took changed things that didn't work. But I don't love to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse in a kind of play-like way because I feel that it kills the... Uh, the freshness of doing things for the first time, you know. So, in the past, I've actually written other scenes for people that are emotionally parallel to the scene that they have to do, so that they don't exhaust the scene, but they're still doing the same, essentially the same scene emotionally. Um, I didn't do that with this one, but I did. We did discuss things, and we talked around it a little bit, and we did read through all the scenes. But yeah, so it was a few hours e with each person, but not days. Um, do you have any advice for casting if you're not Rebecca Miller and you don't have the funds to hire a casting director? Um, I'm producing my friend's first feature. It's a really great script, and we've been advised that if you have or can find like at least one name actor, then that will help you get more money. It's so hard. I mean, what yeah. you're asking is so difficult in terms of attaching the actor for financing because for me that's a chicken and egg question because it's a casting director's job but it's also the help of a producer and that's also what a producer does. Um, and with Damon and Rachel, it's extraordinary because you know they're Ethan Hawke is in this because, you know, Rachel was like, I just saw Ethan Hawke on the street and we were talking and he's not doing anything right now. <laughs> you know, we had th thought they about They did know him. each other before that <laughs> She didn't just go up to him. You know, so that's the example, like I that's one of many Texas. examples of a producer, you know, helping you cast your film or producing your film. And I think the approach, is very hard if it's like, I'm sure it's a million dollars, under a million dollars, and I think that you can hire a casting director to work with you and consult to, it's a consulting period, and you can hire somebody for a certain amount of money to help you attach to get that person and build a deal in place to then have that person then cast your film once it's fully financed. And what I would say about it is that there are so many of us that are really good. You know, some people are busy and other people aren't. And everybody just wants to work on a good 
film. You know, so if it's good, just send it to a casting director and ask them if they will work on it. But I also think, if I, if I may, just that there's sometimes something to be said to going with a, a younger casting director, somebody who's your own generation. Because like, Cindy and I really came up together. It's, it was my first film, my first feature film was Cindy's first casting feature casting job and um, I mean that actually didn't have big stars in it but uh, and was financed in an unusual way but but still there's something to be said for that because then you they're hungry you know you guys come up together it's not like anyone's doing you a favor so if they're talented it's good to just keep your eye out for the really talented ones around and you. And to add on to that, it's that all of us, like me uh, you know, and everybody else, we all have associates who are casting directors or who want to be casting directors. So I have an associate in my office who actually works on uh, very small films, and sometimes we work on them together. And you know, that's, again, the way of meeting a person of your same age and doing it. But we all have associates. Like, if there's a style of casting that you love, because there are styles, if there's somebody that speaks to you in terms of a casting director and you want to go after that style, go after their associate. Um, hi. Uh I got kind of curious to understand what you said when, that when you finished the story, you were making a point. And as a, I'm a screenwriter, and every time that I write something, I believe that all that I want is to make a point. And I see my characters, and I f think that they are doing that for me. So when you said that you, you were making a point, and that was kind of the reason that it wasn't published yet, what do you mean with making a point, and why do you think that people don't want to hear about it or something like that? Because I think that story and character have to drive the idea, and that the idea can't come first in, in fiction and in storytelling. If you're writing a nonfiction narrative, uh, investigative journalism, or you've got you know some science-based thing, it's very, very different. But when it comes to storytelling it's driven by character and action and interaction and the emotional investment the point gets made by all of that if you start with your point which is how i started naively in some crazy way really 15 years ago when i when i started this um, i was younger i was making and i learned over that time that oh right but the fact of the matter is the characters became, they came full circle and became full characters, but I still started with the point. And you don't want to do that because that actually sets you off on a wrong path and then it becomes very difficult to unwind it. And what happened is that when Rebecca said that what she liked was the hook, it was like what was true in the story that I wrote originally was the emotional journey that the characters go on and what their intention was, and their, and, and their, you know, how they lived in the world, and you know, their names, <laughs> and the hook point. <laughs> but what Rebecca was able to do is then take those people and, and make the point, which we don't even, you know, if we ask what the point of the movie is, and that would be a conversation entirely, and I'm not sure that we would really know what the point is, because that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific final word. Um, 
I'm going to ask the audience to stay seated for a moment so that our guests can um, get out the door. But before we do that, because it's just a big group, um, let's thank them and give them a warm round of applause for their time today. Thank you. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.